1989, the Cold War came to an end. President George H.W. Bush and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev made the historic announcement at the Malta summit. The Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, or START, was revived and signed. Bush would announce the withdrawal of thousands of tactical weapons, taking many strategic nuclear missiles off of a hair-trigger alert. Gorbachev followed with similar initiatives, going so far as to suspend nuclear testing. And to the scientists who were closely watching the nuclear arms race, this was great news. Such great news that they turned back the hands on the doomsday clock. The countdown went from 10 minutes until midnight to 17. A decision that sparked heated debate as one of the founders believed that it wouldn't move beyond 15 minutes in their lifetime. There was an optimism for a new era of nuclear disarmament and countries working together for a better world. 17 minutes is the farthest the clock has ever been turned back. And the hope these scientists had in 1991 is a distant memory. Because right now, the doomsday clock is set at 100 seconds, the closest it's ever been to midnight. My name is Jacqueline Swan, and this is Existentially Yours, a podcast that looks to start a conversation about the bigger issues threatening humanity and the people trying to solve them. And today, I'm watching the doomsday clock. get started at seven minutes to midnight. So we're, we're kind of trapped in that a little bit. Meet Rachel Bronson. I'm the president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And we oversee the management of the Doomsday Clock in addition to publishing a magazine and a daily website on existential risk. Rachel is a very relaxed person for someone who literally oversees a company whose sole mission is to inform humanity about the many ways we're dooming ourselves. I mean, I was just anxious talking to her about what she does. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists was founded in 1945 and established the Doomsday Clock in 1947. We were founded by Manhattan Project scientists who were concerned about the technology they had created with a goal of doing three things. The first was to engage the public on new technology, which was kind of nuclear technology, the science and the technology behind exploding the atom, harnessing the power of the sun. The second was to provide a platform where scientists could come out of the ivory tower or come out of their labs and engage the public on the consequences of their research. Even today, there's still a debate as to whether scientists should stay in their labs or come out. And we were a place that if they chose to come out and engage on policy issues, which we think is important. And then the third, which really guides us today, was to manage the dangerous presence of Pandora's box of modern science. Science and technology was moving faster than ever, and that we, there was real political and ethical issues. And that today is really what focuses our attention. Imagine being so disturbed by your creation that you start a publication to raise awareness of how doomed humanity could potentially be. Recognizing that however this conversation is started, it needs to be done in a simple way that anyone can comprehend. Which leads you to creating a literal clock counting down our doom. Doom in this case represented by midnight. So the bulletin comes out of the University of Chicago where Enrico Fermi split the atom. And then many people left to go 
to Los Alamos to work on the Manhattan Project. Some stayed back home doing the research. Many of them were immigrants themselves, as Enrico Fermi was from Europe. Most importantly, they understood the connection between politics and science. So as the science was beginning to evolve, they began organizing for how to engage the public also on these issues that were coming, that they could foresee. There's something very democratic about that. They understood that the public needed to understand that. Why is the public important? Because they need to be galvanized to make sure that there are leaders, their leaders were paying attention. They were gathering, they were thinking, they were working and they were writing and they were also focused on policymakers in that they began creating these surveys about how scientists thought the bomb should be demonstrated. Should it be dropped over a major city? Should it be dropped over the, the desert of, of the United States? Should it be dropped over an unpopulated place in Japan? These were things they were asking to try to influence policymakers in terms of whether they were going to use this weapon or not. So when the bombs were dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to the horror of many in 1945, they immediately gathered and within four months had a bulletin, literally a black and white six-page bulletin that they issued as the first treatise, if you will, from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists of Chicago. And they started churning out kind of regular bulletins. By 1947, they had a readership and a following that was burgeoning, and they decided to turn it into a proper magazine. That's the, the communication vehicle of the time. That's how you communicate widely. But what you need, if you think about time and life, is you need a great cover. And so they knew that they needed a cover. And so one of the Manhattan Project scientists, Alexander Langsdorf, was married to an oil landscape artist named Martil Langsdorf. She's an artist, so she's thinking about what is going to resonate, but she's also sitting at the dinner table surrounded by these Manhattan Project scientists. And there's stories where she said she and her husband would count up how many of her, their friends had won Nobel Prizes, right? This was a very scientifically oriented elite group that they hung out in. And so she understood their fears of the technology. She understood their aspirations of the technology as well. And so the first cover of the first magazine is a ticking clock and sets it at seven minutes to midnight. We started seven minutes to midnight. She sets it there, she says, because it's like pleasing to her eye. There's an artistic component to it. But it's also very clear that it's suggesting a countdown, that it, it's suggesting a sense of urgency. There's not much time left, but there is time left. And what it conveys is we can also move it back, right? There's, there's something in our power to stop this clock from ticking forward. So 1947, that becomes the cover. And in 1949, the Soviets explode their own atomic bomb. They have figured out how to do this. And the editor of the magazine moves the clock closer to midnight. So after that, the cover of the magazine, the clock moves. And suddenly, the static representation becomes dynamic. But who is making the call on how close we are to midnight? How do you even begin to weigh that decision? The editor, now the Science and Security Board, but the then editor would simply move the clock whenever he felt it appropriate. And he was surrounded by all these Nobel Prize winners, the most elite names in science lore of the 20th century. He's moving them, but he's not moving the clock just you know, off the top of his head. These, this is the space he's in. Once he passes away in the 70s, that responsibility of moving the clock 
gets transferred to our board. They're talking throughout the year and they're working throughout the year on issues of existential threat. So we focus on nuclear risk, climate change, which gets added to our calculations, and new disruptive technologies. They're in conversation with each other, but they come together in person twice a year. In November, it's to set the clock, and they're kind of working on papers that they present. So they come in, and every year I ask them two basic questions. One is, is humanity safer or greater risk this year compared to last year when we met? And is humanity safer or at greater risk this year compared to the more than 75 years we've been asking this question? They talk about what has happened in their area of expertise. And ultimately what it becomes is a judgment, a judgment of these experts about how they're answering this question. So it's based on considerable expertise but at the end of the day, it's a judgment. And we justify that in the report that we issue every year to explain why we've moved it forward, kept it the same, or moved it back. What we're asking them to do is really quite hard, right? Like there is, it is putting together apples and oranges. There's no doubt about it. Climate change, nuclear risk, advances in mis and disinformation that we've been witnessing, trying to understand how that relates to existential threats. Does it relate? Scientists, by their nature, want to speak in like nuances because their expertise is so significant and could be this way, it could be that way. But we as the public and for policymakers, we're like, well, what do you think? Better, worse, the same, right? And by how much? And so the doomsday clock is a very blunt instrument, but what we're forcing them to do is answer that question. Okay, we've got all the nuance on the table. You've told us in your issue area what you're thinking. You've heard what others are seeing in there. So really simply, is it better, worse, or the same? And what's the magnitude of change? In those conversations, that's how we get to the time on the doomsday clock. I think it's important to note that in 75 years, the clock has only been moved 24 times. And eight of those times, it moved backwards. It's important to recognize this because it shows that the people behind this decision don't take it lightly. The hand remaining still more than it's moved is a powerful statement because when it does move, it symbolizes to you that humanity in some way has greatly changed the way we approach our use of technology, whether for the better or worse. Everyone comes in and they're humans, right? And so they'll call each other on that too sometimes where it's just like, you know, it all feels terrible or if it hears something that I think is really good, right? And like, I want to talk about, but they'll like kind of check themselves on that being like, okay, I get it. But like, what's the data showing you, right? And so one really interesting conversation that we've had was around climate change. And climate change is really a difficult issue for us because it's always getting worse, right? So we could really be moving the clock forward every year just based on what we're seeing in terms of climate change. And so they really grapple with the sense of, well, how much worse constitutes a change in the doomsday clock? If it is getting worse, you don't want to keep it the same, but like, what's the magnitude and, and how do we use this alarm and this alert and when? So we had this really interesting conversation a few years ago. One of our members was taken by how issues of climate change were beginning to permeate political parties and politics globally, not so much in the United States, but the rest of the world is seeing it integrated into the political discussion. 
and young people. And this is where Greta Thunberg was really visible and vocal. We saw parties winning in Europe based on environmental platforms. And really young people, he was really taken by young people globally, really organizing it, getting it, understanding it, worrying about it, trying to begin to drive policy, even if they weren't yet voting or just as they were starting to vote. So he was really moved by that. And in his mind, that was a very hopeful sign, something he thought that should be called out and possibly move the clock back. And I think where his colleagues on the climate team kind of came to was a sense that everything he was saying was right, but it wasn't yet moving policy. It wasn't yet changing practices. We weren't seeing anything consequential yet from that. So while it was promising, and while we called it out in the report as this is exactly what you need to begin this global movement to respond, it hadn't yet permeated politics and political decisions to the level that was required given the urgency. So those are some of the conversations in terms of what weight do you assign or associate with different metrics? So those are some of the things that get included in in it. If you know about the James Day clock, I'm sure you've heard the joke. It's always close to midnight, which misses the point. The doomsday clock is a symbol. It is meant to start a conversation about the bigger issues threatening humanity, which can be a terrifying thing to talk about and put into perspective, because it's hard to turn a blind eye to the things affecting our world right now. I mean, it's the purpose of this podcast, but it's also uncomfortable to talk about these existential threats by their very nature. And the Doomsday Clock, despite its name, is meant to make this conversation easier. These issues of nuclear risk, climate change, these new disruptive technologies, they're really hard to talk about. They're really hard to talk about. And the moment you start talking about it, someone can easily marginalize you from the conversation. They immediately start talking about the acidification of the ocean and, you know, what that measurement is. And... 75% of the people in the room already feel disempowered to have that conversation, right? Part of it is by design to necessitate this technical conversation to keep the public out of it. And some of it is just the nature of these uh, topics. They're very technical and people spent lifetimes working on them. What the doomsday clock does is it provides an entrance ramp for you and I and others to start a conversation. Would you have moved it forward? Would you have moved it back? Would you have kept it the same? Why? Do you think it's getting better if it's ridiculous that we moved it forward? Do you think it's getting better? Why? Literally, that conversation is more important than the time. Enabling that conversation. And so when people roll their eyes at you and be like, oh, it's always close and getting closer. I think the follow-up time is, well, do you think they got it right? And if they say no, I think it should be five minutes to minute. I think they should have moved it back an hour. And you could argue that out, right? You and I could have that conversation. Well, the number of warheads on, you know, that in everyone's arsenal is down significantly. So why did we move it closer? Well, here's what we were seeing. We are seeing increasing military support to every nuclear arsenal on this planet. We saw a deterioration of arms control regimes. We saw military postures increasingly making it seem that the use of nuclear weapons was more likely than less likely. On the climate side, we saw the international community coming together, but not bringing the kinds of commitments that were needed to bring down the effects of climate change. We saw 
efforts increasing normalization of ideas of geoengineering that will have long-term consequences for the future of this planet. Like we can respond to that, right? But that's the kind of conversation to have. And really the time is important as a place to start, but I think it's a completely legitimate conversation if you decide to take it seriously. The Doomsday Clock is a great place to start. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, for the nature of her work, Rachel has a calmness to her, and she shows hope in what humanity can accomplish if we band together. So I asked her if she had a message for our audience. These are very difficult times, and I think these issues that in the past that we were talking about were felt so abstract feel pretty tangible today. We're seeing it playing out in the Ukraine right now. We're seeing the dangers of nuclear weapons associated with Ukraine. We have a sense of the urgency of climate change. Advancing technologies that we've been concerned about seem very front and center. So I do think this is a moment to be paying attention. I think important, especially in the Ukraine, in, around Ukraine, is how do we think about this? This is what experts are thinking, and I think everyone can be thinking about it together. How do we come out of this with less of a reliance on nuclear weapons rather than more? Like, that's what's really important in this. We saw Vladimir Putin saber rattling with nuclear weapons. We're, the United States, to respond, is about to spend $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years on nuclear weapons. They're not really proving that useful. So even if you think they're useful for deterrence, and there's a big debate about it, do we really need so many? Um, do we really need this new investment, especially when we know what the 21st century threats look like? We are sitting at home because of a pandemic. We know more of them are coming. Like, how are we investing our, our resources and are we doing it in a way that matches 21st century threats? And that's where I think the expert community is really debating. And I think the public has a lot to say about that. So how do we move to the 21st century and use our money to address 21st century threats rather than staying bogged down in 20th century weaponry that is certainly not keeping us safe? I think this is a pivotal point on all these issues. I think to the extent to which we can talk about them, have a framework for them, have podcasts like yours, follow them with greater um, interest, follow them with a greater education, a little bit more background so we don't feel alienated from the conversation. I think it will actually lead to a safer place. In 75 years, we've never been this close to midnight, but we can change that. We have in the past. It just comes down to how society is addressing these urgent issues. Are we fighting for the urgent change we need to turn back the clock? Or are we going to hear the bell toll at midnight? Thank you for listening to Existentially Yours, a Technality production. It's hosted and produced by me, Jacqueline Swan. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Existentially Yours wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want more content about where our future is going, head over to Technology's YouTube page.